Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jewish Dating Secrets. Very exciting evening. So before we get started, a little bit of housekeeping. Number one, I do want to give Hakaratatov, which means a thanks, a very special thanks for those people who donated tonight. The money that we collected from tonight's class is going to a needy bride to help her get married. It's actually a Jewish dating secret. It's a special omen, a special segula to support a bride in need. And my wish and my blessing to you is that God will support you in your journey by you supporting those in need. So if you ever hear a cup of a couple in need or a bride in need, give them either physical support, help them plan their wedding, help them uh, financially, because that is a very special Jewish secret sauce to getting married. Um, a lot of us here, not everyone here, but a lot of us here tonight are single. And I know that we have a lot of different age groups here, which is fine. And so whenever we get together, we're actually in a room. I consider us here in a room. And so there's magic in the air. And I wanted to uh, give you the opportunity that if you're looking for someone, perhaps you can meet someone here tonight. So if you go to Zoom and you go to your name, you can put either an A in front of your name, which means available, or an NA, which means not available. Not available. If someone puts NA in front of their name, um, please respect them. Or if they wrote, like somebody wrote mother, which means obviously that they're not available. Or um, so put, if you're, if you're not available, please respect those who are not available. If you are available, what I want you to do is put your age range and your, let's say, religious orientation. It's two, two simple things. Like I'm looking for someone between the ages of 25 and 30, and I am traditional. Just so that someone has that there. And then um, what you're doing is you're opening up the door for people to be able to contact you. And there's lots of different ages here. So this is your opportunity for someone to contact you. The tradition is within the Jewish community, so we're going to follow that tradition is generally males contact females. And so that is the the there's a there's a value in the man going after the woman. He has to search. It's his job to find the woman. So we're going to uh, uh, perhaps allow that to happen. Also, for those of you who don't know about J Montreal or J Matchmaking, Two uh two fantastic sites. These are how I make all my matches. Uh, and there's a lot of changes and a lot of updates that are happening to it actually in the next little while, including a number of uh matchmaking trainings and new matchmakers that are coming on. So I encourage you to make a profile there. You can go to jmontreal.com or jmatchmaking.com. If you use marketing code rabbi's gift, it's one word, R-A-B-B-I-S-G-I-F-T, it's totally free. And so that way you have another opportunity. Look, we need as many opportunities and as many abilities as possible to be able to find our other half. Um, also, throughout the class tonight, you are welcome to private chat me your questions. I'm going to talk now for about 45 minutes. And afterwards, we're going to have an open Q&A. I'm going to give priority to those people who sent me questions before we started tonight, and those people who have, will be sending me questions during this. So you can just literally direct message me. It's not hard. Just go down to a direct message, find my name. 
you can direct message me. Um, and um, I will take your questions. Right now, we're not going to unmute, but you're welcome to um, direct message me for the time being. Uh, you don't, um, my email is not necessary, but you can have my email if you want. It's rabbi, I'll put it here in the chat. It's rabbi at jewishndg.com. Someone needs to be muted. We're just going to mute all for now. We'll mute everybody for now. That way it doesn't disturb anyone else. And then we'll allow you later on to unmute. Okay. So tonight, once again, we are talking about Jewish dating secrets. What, what secret are you expecting to hear tonight that you don't already know? I mean, so many of us know so much. If I were to have to give you one, let's say, secret tonight, I'd like to tell you that 50% of your marriage is right here in this room. Half of your marriage is right here in this room. That's you. You are here. And that is half of your potential marriage. All you're looking for is the other half. All you're looking for is another 50%. It's not. It's not complicated. You're not looking for, you know, some people think that you have to look for a lot of people. And if you just do a numbers game, it's not a numbers game. You're just trying to find one person. That's all you're trying to find. It's that simple. Or that complicated if you make it that complicated. The other thing and something that I speak about a lot is that the person that you're looking for the person you're looking for needs to be a complement of the person you are. But tonight, tonight I want to focus on something else. I want to focus on the idea of love or true love. I'm going to start off by asking, do you believe in true love? Now, stop for a moment and think about it. I love to see in the comments, please. Put it in the comments. Do you believe in true love? Somebody says, yes, yes, I used to. Yes, yes. You can also private message me if you don't want to do it in public. I'm getting, wow, yes. I do maybe, someone says, okay. Yes, wow, a lot of yes, people believing in true love. I think so, yes. It's a different view now than earlier, but I do believe it. Okay, maybe. No. Oh, this is very, very, very nice. I like this comment. True love is made and not found. Mm, I'm going to talk about that soon. You may be onto something. This is great. So true love, does it really exist? Is there an example for those of you who said yes? Is there an example of true love that you could think about offhand? Maybe you've already experienced it. Maybe you've witnessed it firsthand. 
You're welcome to write it. Maybe a, a line. Have you ever witnessed your parents? Okay. A parent caring for a sick husband? Yes. In marriage? Okay, obviously probably the marriage of someone you know. My parents being together 68 years. Wow. Mazel tov. That's an amazing, unbelievable. Okay, somebody says, I witnessed the opposite. <laughs> somebody else says, in the movies, my parents, my brother and sister-in-law, fantastic. You've definitely come across it in the movies. You've definitely come across it in romance novels and books. And one day, and I hope that day is soon for you, I think you're going to find yourself enveloped by it. You're going to feel uh, the butterflies in your stomach. You're going to be floating on cloud nine. Love. It's going to look rosy. It's, it's la-la land. It's going to be reality. True love is so powerful that there are few, if any other things in life, that we desire to make permanent. So the idea of love is forever or till death do us part, this is precisely why I think it's so important that we explore true love tonight. See, on the one hand, love seems intertwined with the concept of eternity. And in reality, eternal love Eternal love seems so elusive. I saw an interesting study from the American Psychological Association that more than 90% of people will marry by the age of 50. However, about 40 to 50% of married couples, at least in the United States, because that was where the study was done, will divorce. And I think it's fair to say that most people who do get married, when they get married, they're feeling true love for each other. And they, I would say, usually have felt it for quite some time already. Well, I, I would assume so, right? That's why they're getting married. Yet, depending on how you look at the statistics, 35 to 50% of first marriages end in divorce, and it's even higher for second and third marriages. So what causes people to fall out of love? If true love really exists, as so many of you said, that true love really exists, so what happens that someone can fall out of true love? How did it turn to animosity? Let's pause. Let's think about that for a second. Instead of trying to jump and answer, let's think about it for a second. How do we fall out of love? How does love turn to animosity? Maybe it's that people change. Maybe people develop new interests. Maybe the relationship 
was founded in the wrong ways or for the wrong reasons? Yes. Maybe anger creates animosity. Unreliability creates animosity. Thank you for that comment. Maybe, as someone else is saying, that it wasn't true love from the beginning. Or maybe living with the same person long-term is constricting. Maybe it's not satisfying. Betrayal? Yes. I think all of these ideas seem very sensible. They seem like they're valid reasons for why a significant percent of relationships don't become permanent love. Despite the dreamland desire for this to happen. So I want to actually modify the original question that I asked. I don't think it's about true love. What I want to know is how do we turn true love into lasting love? How do we turn true love into lasting love? So in order to come up with any solution that may help love last, we have to try to understand the very concept of love itself. What I want you to do, if you have a paper in front of you or on your phone or wherever you are, I want you to write down, you can even write it in the comments if you want to, or you can write it as a, as a, as a private message to me. I want you to write down two things that you love. Two things that you love. I love jelly beans and my family. Not in that order, I hope. <laughs> yeah, somebody else said family and Judaism. Okay, my family and ice cream. Okay, two things. Any others? My son and Judaism. Okay. Look at this, such a, such a Jewish group here. That's the things you love. Oh, Hashem. Yes, of course. Love helping people. Okay. Plants and cheesecake. Food and animals. It's a good one. People in my life and life. Dogs. Creation. This is fantastic. Any others? Two things that you love. Learning, love learning. Great. Love freedom. I'm going to say it because somebody wrote it and I, I, I got to say it. Someone says, I love baking, uh, bacon and cooking. I thought it was baking, but he said bacon. Look to each their own. No judgment here. Um, love meeting people. Love reading and traveling. Love my free time and sleep. Love being in nature. Love swimming. Mm. Free time and traveling. My home. This is fantastic. I think we have a very good idea of things that we love. Now, I want to ask you another question. I want you to write down two people that you love. And this is for you alone. Ideally, if they have a name, 
I love them to have a name. Not just like you can write, you know, my mom, but yeah, well, mom, mom is good enough as a name because we shouldn't be calling our parents by their first name anyway. Okay. Someone's wrote parents and a particular person. I'm not going to announce those names to not to give away. If someone sends me a private message, I want to, I want to honor that. So two people that you love, write that down. Hmm. My chat box is much less uh, active, which is good. It means that you're writing down real people, which is really what, what the point of this was. Okay, good. Someone says, I'm struggling with this. I'm happy that you're struggling with this. That's why I'm giving you time. My aunt and my mom was passed. I'm sorry to hear that. For those of you who are struggling with it, that's good. But take a minute, think about it, and write two people down. Give me some thumbs up if you've written the two people down, just so I know that we can move forward. Okay. Okay, amazing. My mom and my grandpa who has passed. Okay. This is really great. My father who has passed. My grandma and my friend. Okay. This is really special. And I think for those people who are loving people who have passed away, it's a great opportunity to close our eyes and say a little prayer and, and think of them. Just an opportunity to bring them back into our lives and think of them is always a really special moment. If those are the people that we love and they're not here physically with us. Someone else said, my students, beautiful. I'm going to move on. Isn't it strange? Isn't it strange that I asked you to use the same word to express the feeling for a thing and the feeling for a person? I mean, imagine you go and visit your mother or your grandmother. And she opens the door to give you a big hug. And you say, I love you, Grandma. And then you notice that she got a new doormat. And you comment, hey, Grandma, is that the new doormat? I love it so much. Now, are you saying that you have the same feelings for your grandmother and her doormat? No, she's not a doormat. What I'm saying is that you have the same feelings for your grandmother and her doormat. See, when we think of relationships or marriage, one of the primary words that come to mind is love. And for good reason. Love is a critical, it's a crucial, crucial ingredient in long-lasting relationships. 
But if I suggested that you married one of the two things that you wrote before, you look at me if I, as if I was crazy. But when I asked you to ascribe the word love to those things, it seemed perfectly natural because you obviously love those things. So clearly when we're dating, when we're in relationships, when we're in marriage, these should be synonymous with love. But love is by no means synonymous with relationships and marriage and dating. What I want to talk about are three types of love. And I'm going to try to define love for you tonight. And I'm hoping as a result of defining love, it's going to help you really understand what it is you love, how you love, and maybe if there needs to be some kind of change in your life. Let me use love in different contexts. And let's see if we can define its meaning more clearly. If I say, I love, I don't know, this. If I say, I love this. What am I saying? That I, I love my iPhone? Um, what am I loving? Am I loving what it is? Am I loving the item? Are, are, like you said, are you enjoying it? What, what is it when you say that you love something and a thing? What are you actually loving? One of my favorite stories is a tale about a fisherman. The fisherman catches a, a beautiful looking salmon. And as the tale goes, the salmon is terrified. And the, the salmon tries to jump back into the water. And then he hears the fisherman musing about his catch. He says, ah, what a wonderful salmon. The king loves salmon. I better bring this to the king. And, and the salmon's relieved. He's thinking, the, the, the king loves salmon. And everything's going to be okay. The journey to the palace is long, it's dry. And the salmon is working so hard to stay alive. And then he hears it again. The palace chef takes a look at him and says, wow, the king will love this. I better prepare the salmon for him. And again, the salmon, as the tale goes, is relieved. The salmon gets a second wind. The kitchen preparations were extra difficult on the poor salmon. But the words echoed in his mind, the king loves salmon, the king loves salmon. And as he listened to this, it gave him strength. Finally, sitting on the king's plate, the salmon is ready for his salvation. Sure enough, the king takes a look at him, his eyes light up, he smiles broadly, and he says, oh, how I love salmon. And with that, he sticks his fork right into the fish. And with his dying breath, the salmon looks at the king and shides. You don't love salmon. You love yourself. And I think the wise fish has a point. When we say I love something, 
what we're really saying is that I love myself. And I love how that particular thing makes me happy. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Loving ourselves is important. But we're loving that. We're really loving what that can do for me. We're loving how that makes me happy, how, how that gives me pleasure. This is the most elementary, and I would say the most common meaning of love. We're going to call this love tonight, I love it. That's the kind of love it is. It's, it's, a, it's a love it type of love. I have a feeling of desire and it, it could be a thing, it could be a person. That person or that thing can assist me with fulfilling my desire. Many of the things that we say that we love, they actually fall into this category. We don't love the fish. We don't love the chocolates. We don't love the new clothes or the new shoes. We love ourselves and we love the way the fish, we love the way the chocolate, we love the way the new shoes make us feel when we're eating it or when we're wearing them. So the same is with relationships, relationships that we have with people. Sometimes we say we love those people. And really what it means is we love the way they make us happy. That relating to them gives us a sense of connection. We derive pleasure from being with them. And in the context of this relationship, they're essentially an it. They don't really exist because we don't truly, truly love them. We love how they make us feel. So let's clarify. This type of love doesn't necessarily mean that we don't care about them or that we don't treat them properly. We're not talking about a, a relationship that is not, um, not a good relationship that needs particular help. We're talking about a relationship that's okay, but it's a, I love it. I love how you make me feel. You can, you can care about a person, but still love them as a love it relationship. For example, I can, I can wash my car. And I can invest in its maintenance. But I do that because I know that by doing that, the car is going to serve my needs for longer. Now, if the car stops serving my needs, aside for a few of us, most of us are not going to be sentimental about it. We don't care about it anymore. We're not going to love it anymore. So the same thing can happen with the love that we feel towards a person. It could be an acquaintance. It can be a business partner. It could be a friend. I care about them as long as they serve my needs. And if they stop, I stop loving them. Because in truth, this love that I have for them was born out of self-love. And even though I, the I love it arrangement that some of us have works in all types of relationships with things and with people, I think and I hope that we can all agree that it's a pretty shallow type of love. That love should get should be better than this. I want to introduce you to a second type of love. Number two of the three types of love that I'm going to introduce. So number one was I love it. Number two is I love you. The focus is on the you. So when I say 
when I say I love my family, what am I really saying? Well, let me tell you a story that's uh, in the best-selling book of all time. It's in the Torah. Let's meet Jacob, Yaakov. Many of us already know him. He's 77 years old. He's living in his parents' basement. He has a, a nice tent on a sprawling block in Canaan. And let's just say it's about time he leaves the house. You think? 77? So he goes to Haran. His uncle Lavan lives in Haran. And one of the goals of this trip was to look for a wife. He's 77. You know, these, all these people complaining about people in their 40s and 50s never married? Well, it's in the Torah. He's 77, never married. You see, there's hope for everyone. Oh, that's all, that's all I'm saying. There's hope for everyone. So, exactly. See, still a young man. Or a late bloomer. So he comes to Haran. And he goes to the well. His mother, Rivka, his mother, Rebecca, told him to go there. Because apparently that's the best place to meet women. Just by the way, ever wondering a good place to meet women? Saw you at the well. All the beautiful women, apparently, hang out at the wells. So when he gets to the well, he starts playing uh, Jewish geography with some local shepherds. And just as he mentions... Exactly. There should be a new website. Saw you at the well. Uh, just, just as he mentions his uncle's name, one of the shepherds points to the direction of a young maiden. He says, look over there. There's your uncle's daughter. Her name is Rachel. She's a shepherdess herself, and she's coming to the well to feed her sheep. And as romantic as a romantic story can be, it was love at first sight. I want to quote the rest of the story right out of the book of, of Genesis, right out of the Torah. It's chapter 29. I want, to, I want to read this rest of the story. It says, while he was still talking with them, meaning the shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep. She was a shepherdess. When Yaakov, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Lavan and Lavan's sheep, he went over and rolled the rock off the mouth of the well. Show off, huh? And he watered his uncle's sheep. Then the Torah continues. I didn't make this up. This is right in the good book. And Yaakov kissed Rachel. For those of you who are uh, doing the shidduch dating, hey, just saying, they're not going to be religious enough for today's dating. He raises his voice and he weeps. Yaakov told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that his mother was Rivka, Rebecca. Rachel ran and told her father. When Lavan heard the report of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran toward him. He embraced him, kissed him. A lot of kissing over here. And they brought him into his house. And there Jacob told him his story. And Lavan said to Jacob, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. So Jacob stayed with Lavan for a month. And Lavan says to Jacob, just because you're my kinsman, should you work for me without pay? Tell me, tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Lavan had two daughters. The older one, her name was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel, Rachel. Rachel had beautiful features, Torah, this is from the Torah, and a beautiful complexion. Yaakov 
Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will work for you for seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Lavan said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. And so Yaakov, Jacob worked for Rachel for seven years. And the Torah finishes the narrative by saying they appeared to him like a few days because of his love for her. Oh, gets me every time. True love. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Now, considering that Jacob loved Rachel, why did the seven years appear like a few days? He's waiting for someone he loved. Shouldn't have time felt like it was going slower, not faster? Jacob, Yaakov, clearly loves Rachel. Come on. He's willing to work seven years for the privilege of marrying her. I mean, honestly, there isn't a guy on earth who would do that today. At least no one that I know of. Myself included. But there's something odd about this passage. It says that all those years of working to be able to marry Rachel were like a few days because he loved her so much. I mean, generally speaking, when you're enjoying something, time flies. But when you're longing for something, time moves slowly. It doesn't make any sense. One of the possible ideas is in the, is in the fact that if you look at what was Jacob doing for those seven years, what did he do for Lavan? He was working for him for his daughter's hand in marriage. But what was he actually doing? He was actually shepherding his sheep. Now, who shepherded Lavan's flock before Jacob arrived? Who was the shepherd? We know the Torah tells us. It was Rachel, right? It says that right in the beginning of the narrative. So by Jacob telling Lavan that he would be his shepherd for seven years, he wasn't just working for the privilege of marrying Rachel, he was working instead of her. Every day he was working so she didn't have to. He took over her job. Now that's, that's true love if I've ever heard it. And further, Lavan says, just because you're my kinsman, should you work for me without pay? Tell me what your wages should be. This seems that, where did it say that Jacob began working? I didn't see that anywhere in the text. Did you? The simple implication is that once Jacob gave the sheep water to drink, he, at that moment, took over the shepherding of the sheep so Rachel, so Rachel no longer needed to work. This was even before he ever knew that he was going to take her hand in marriage. It was a hard job. It was a long wait. But when does something feel as though it's taking forever? When you're longing for it. That is, when you don't have it and you want it. Jacob's love of Rachel would have only been about 
what he would have to gain from the relationship, then the love would have been something he desired, but didn't have during the seven years, those seven years of hard labor. So it would have felt not like seven years, not like 20 years. It would have felt like a million years. But Jacob's love for Rachel was much deeper than that. It was about what he could give Rachel. And for that, he didn't have to wait. He was doing that from the second he met her and for all of those seven years. And so this is another Jewish idea, the second type of love. The first love, remember, was loving things, loving it. The second type of love we're going to call I love you. That is, the focus is on the you in the relationship. It's all about you. And even though maybe we also derive some kind of pleasure and joy from this type of relationship, I love you means that the goal of the relationship, like Jacob, is not just about receiving. No, the entire goal of the relationship is primarily about giving. So in this, in this model, in this idea of love, those whom we love are important to us. And our love consists of being concerned for them, concerned for their needs and for their joy. It's funny because this level of love can be said to be hinted at in the Hebrew word for love. The Hebrew word for love is ahava. The aleph means I will, and the hava means give. So in this perspective, love is a verb that implies active service, not just a feeling that can be self-serving. And just as with the I love it type of love, the more you love, the more it's going to love you back. But with this love, the more you give, the more your love for them is going to grow. So it's not just a self-serving. You are actually going to see that your love will grow as a result of this. Now, this type of love, this I love you, this love that's focused on you, is a beautiful type of love. And it's usually reserved for select people. I mean, think about the two people that you wrote when I asked you to write two people that you love most. And this type of relationship, this type of love is, is, is ideal for these relationships. That although these people can bring joy to our lives, our love is not contingent upon that. The, the, the stronger the connotation of love in this context, the stronger our willingness to do for them. So to be sure, it's natural that when we first meet someone, that our love for this person will be an I love it type of love. But it shouldn't stop there. If a relationship involves into something that's more serious, into something that's like a marriage, the big M word, but still consists primarily of an I love it type of love, in my humble opinion, this relationship has a low chance of, of, of succeeding. And I think this is the case many times 
where you have a spouse that's doing a lot for the other. But the giving is contingent. It's not an unconditional love. It's a conditional love that's contingent on what makes them happy. So adding an I love you type of love to the relationship, where the foundation, where the focus is you, would be very beneficial, maybe even critical for marriage. Now, the funny thing is, is you're probably listening and you're saying, this is, this is the perfect type of love. This is an ideal type of love. The problem is that this love is not exclusive to marriage, right? We just said there's two people. Would we consider both of those people potential spouses? Probably not. Like you can have this type of love with a parent or with a grandparent. So what, what is the, the, the ideal type of love? And this is where I want to bring in the third type of love. And I believe that this type of love is unique to Jewish theology. This is a Jewish dating secret. You see, in most literature, the playing field stops here. Most psychologists will talk about, in other words, I put different words to it, but an I love a thing, an it type of love, and a you type of love. Most of the marriage self-help books are going to explore relationships from these types of love. And they'll guide us to move either from an it to a you, or maybe if there's too much you to bring a little more it, a little more self-love. But the Torah and Judaism gives us a third type of love, a marriage love. Let's go back to the Torah. I want to introduce this love to you because I think it's going to explain a lot of things about life to you. And I'm hoping it's going to, going to change the way that you look at relationships. If you look at the Torah, if you look at the narrative in Bereshit and Genesis, when God creates the first human being, this is the starting point of Jewish thought on relationship between spouses. The verse says, it's Genesis 1.27. The verse says, God created the human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, little caveat, I'm not talking about gender. The Torah talks about gender. Anyone who has an issue with particular um, discussion on gender, this is this this predates all those issues. So we're gonna let's let's allow the Torah to live for 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 its time period and understand it for on 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 its own text, its own way. This verse seems quite redundant. There must be like a clearer way. Like if I was writing it, I would edit it and I would say, "God created the human in His image." That sounds good to me. Okay, fine. And, and God created male and female. Or, or, or God created the man and woman in his image. How about that? That says it all. Why the redundancy? There's a beautiful midrash that talks about this and tries to resolve the discrepancy. It's a midrash in Bereshit's Rabbah. It says, Rabbi Yirmiya ben Eliezer said, when God created the first human, it was both male and female. 
And that's why the verse says male and female, he created them. You see, originally, God created one human being. That's why it's a singular use, the word him. But that being was one side male and the other side female. That's why the plural usage of them. So what happened to this primordial Adam, to this first Adam? Well, let's go back to the Torah and see what happens. The Torah continues saying that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon this primordial Adam. And as he slept, God took one of his sides and he closed the flesh in its place. And God built the side that he had taken from Adam into a woman. What? What happened here? Did God run out of raw materials? Why couldn't he just create two beings separately and call it a day? No pun intended. But why were, why were Adam and Eve created as one being and then split into two? Why couldn't they both cre be created from earth? After all, all the animals were created from earth. Why, why change? Why create the woman differently? And I think the, the Torah is telling us that Adam and Eve are not just two people who can form a beautiful I love you relationship. They are essentially soulmates. They are two halves of a single whole. They were originally created as one whole person. Literally, they were two parts that were separated. They're two halves of an, of an original whole. It's not a euphemism. Soulmate is not an idea. It's reality. The Torah looks at the union of Adam and Eve not as a close partnership, not even as an intimate relationship, which is essentially the closest that two distinct entities could ever get. The Torah says that since they're created as one, they could and should reunite in a way that they relate to each other as one flesh. And that's why the narrative continues and says, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they should become one flesh. So it makes total sense. Adam and Eve, who were truly once one, but what does that have to do with the rest of us? We were not created like Adam and Eve. Once they were separated, no one else was ever created that way. So how does this principle apply to us? It's beautiful for Adam and Eve, but what about you and me? There must be that what is true for Adam and Eve is true for us in some way as well. The Zohar describes that what was true for Adam and Eve in a physical sense is true for each of us on a soul level. The Zohar says that when God sends forth souls in this world, the male and the female are joined together. And when they descend into the world, they're separated from each other. One half, it says, typically precedes the other in descending and entering the human body. And at the time that they come together in marriage, God, who knows the destiny of these souls, joins them as they were in their initial state and proclaims their union. So when they are joined together, they become one in body and soul.
So since the time of Adam and Eve, males and females have not been created as a joint single entity. But the Zohar says, nevertheless, in essence, each person is only one half of a single being. The inherent unity of man and woman and the subsequent division and reunification continue to take place for each and every couple. So the Torah story about Adam and Eve teaches us about the possibilities of our love. And it sets an idea for us to emulate. In English, we have this term soulmates. But for us, it's not that a husband and wife are distinct souls that become mates. They're actually a single soul. One that was divided from birth, from before birth. And they're reunited at marriage. So maybe if we take a look at this, we could gain some new insight as to why we're constantly seeking romance and love. You see, in a sense, we've all wandered away from ourselves. When we're born, our souls are sent off to live in an unnatural state. It's a state of complete fragmentation. And throughout our lives, we crave to be united with our authentic selves, imprinted within each of our consciousness, is the need to find not just someone to love, but literally we're looking for the other half. This is what I'd like to call tonight a single I love. I'm going to try to give you an example. And before, as I was preparing tonight's talk, I was trying to think of a couple of examples. This is the best one that I could think of. Striking a match. Let's say the flame is the original complete soul. The, the Torah compares the human soul to a candle. So it's not just an illustration. It's, it actually makes sense in, in the metaphor. So now you, you light two candles, and then the, the soul then splits, right? Vitalizing two people. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's actually appropriate. It's an appropriate metaphor because the Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for woman is isha. And they have the same root letters, which is aleph and shin, which is ish, which is fire. So what happens if you take and you put the two wicks together? So then the two unite. Two candles, one flame. That's exactly what it is. Soulmates mean that two distinct individuals become one singular flame. So it's not just this euphemism or this romantic story. Oh, my soulmate. Yes, you're my soulmate. No, it's really true. You're really two halves of a singular whole. We're not just telling a fairy tale to the children. We're telling a true story. It's nice. But how does the single I love, how does the soulmate love affect the relationship in a practical sense? The love of self is an unparalleled love, both in terms of 
how much we're willing to invest ourselves, and how quick we are to overlook what we don't like about ourselves. So if the person we love becomes part of that same love, then we're going to be overjoyed to support their aspirations. Whatever they do, it's like we do it. When they do something, we get excited. It's like we did it ourselves. We're actually even able to look over their faults like we look over our own faults. We can't see our own faults. And if they're really, truly part of us, if they're the other half of our soul, then we can see their faults the same way. We just overlook them. We take pride in their success, just like it would be our success. And we're concerned about their struggles, just like we're experiencing them. This soulmate love, it sets a completely different attitude with regards to solving conflicts. Conflicts are inevitable. I've spoken about this before. Conflicts are good. They're good if they're resolved properly and if there's proper communication. But conflict could be good for a relationship, often is good for a relationship. But there's a different kind of love here. Again, I was trying to find the metaphor. Just follow me with this metaphor. It's a little bit far-fetched, but hey, I'm just going to go with it for tonight. Let's say a bunch of us were going downtown for a night out. And there's no room in the car for me and for you. Hypothetically, I can leave you behind. I mean, it wouldn't be good for our friendship, but physically it could happen. Now, suppose there's enough room in the car for me, except there's no room for my right leg. Am I going to cut off my right leg in order to go downtown? That's what we're talking about when we talk about soulmates. If where I want to go in my life does not have room for my soulmate, then the fact that we're a single eye means that I cannot go off in a direction that leaves my soulmate behind. We are one single entity. And if my feelings for my soulmate start to wane, it's not just that the relationship falls apart. It's a part of me that's missing. That's why the soulmate idea within Judaism is so strong that divorce is called an amputation. Now it's allowed. It's sometimes necessary. But it's the very last option and only when everything else fails because to us, it's an amputation. There's a part of ourself that will be missing. That's what single eye love is. And I think looking at these three models of love, the I love it, love as a thing. I, it's only what you can do for me. I love you, what I can do for you. But this unique love, the single I love, that we are both part of the same whole. We are all part of a single entity. Our, we are soulmates, true soulmates. And we continue to love through caring, through giving. But instead of being limited to the maximum love and respect that we can possess for another, what happens is we become the subject of the full capability of love, the full capability of respect, 
that we possess for self. Our pain is our joy. It's all us. We are one together. So when you're looking for your soulmate, you're not looking for someone who's separate. You are looking for the other half of your soul, which means 50% of your relationship is right here in this room right now. That's how I started tonight, and that's how I'm going to end. You have to see that you are actually 50% there. Know yourself. That's a different conversation. We've had that one before. Know yourself, but you have to also know that 50% of your relationship is here. You're already 50% of the way there because you are you. And so I'll finish off my words by saying that I bless each and every one of you. That you should be able to recognize. Some of you even asked this question already. To recognize your soulmate, to be able to have the sensitivity, to see this is the right one. Even if it's not exactly what you were looking for, even if it's not exactly what you were holding out for, but you should be able to recognize that this is the right one for me because this is the other half of my soul and it just makes sense and it works and it jives. And together, let us say, Amen.